Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Thank you for coming out. Maybe we can start with questions. It's easy for me that way. If there's any questions. Yeah. No, they were just regular cards. Yeah, just regular um, stack deck of cards. Uh, it took... Um, it's very difficult to say. I mean, it's 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 a long process in in making a film. You know, you you write the screenplay, um, and that takes um, got to depend on how fast you are or how, or how slow. And um, then once that's done, it's like it's a long period of trying to find the, the the financing for it, and that was the longest period. And it took about two years to find the money for it. And then once that was in place, six weeks of pre-production, and then it was a twenty like a 28-day shoot, and then we had another about two months or so, or three months to to edit. Actually, when it's all done, in order to shoot and do everything, it takes about a year, uh, not counting the search for the financing. How much did we spend on it? It was $1.5 million. Yeah. It was filmed in L.A. Yeah, usually studio films cost a great deal more, like, uh, this film, if it was done with a studio, would cost around ten, as opposed to one point five. So there's a big difference. Uh, and usually, films on average now, uh, average studio film is around fifteen to twenty million dollars. So, how do you get that kind of money? It's it's actually it's um it's somewhat easy in a sense. It really, uh, comparatively speaking, yeah, it it is. It's interesting because. I was talking to some other young people about screenplays and things like that and uh how how easy it is to to make money in this business you know and how they try to keep you from knowing about it how how simple it is in a sense I was working with a guy who's making a, a fortune by rewriting screenplays for other people and um what happens is uh, the studios uh the, the funny thing is like most people in this business don't know what they're doing right and then that's the honest to God truth. We really, not we, but they really don't know what they're doing. <laughs> and uh, and you sort of have this notion that you have to go to school, you have to get, you know, a degree in literature and all this thing like that. No, 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 no. And it's really a con game. You know, people don't know how to write stories in this business. Uh, you think they do. They spend all this money, but they don't. And if you if you read the kind of material that they get, you see, I mean, I could do it. It's, your, your baby brother could do it. It's that simple, you know. Because if you, if I mean, it's like, you know, the stories from t- tomatoes eating people to sophisticated films, you know. And the majority of the stuff that they do is really sophomoric. I mean, if you had any kind of storytelling ability, you know, if you can rap, you can tell stories, jokes, you can you can do very good in this business. You can do very well. And like I was telling this guy, I was doing this for three hundred thousand dollars, you know, to do something to to rewrite what someone else has done. And the thing is, you see, they don't want you to really do anything inventive or creative. They just want you to take what they've done and sort of juggle what's there and give it back to them. And you can make a good living doing that, actually, by just make signing your name to a contract and saying I'm going to do it, and then do the. 
do the best you can and give it back to them. And, and that's generally what happens. And they go on to get another writer. And that writer does the same thing. And he goes on to get another writer. So at the end of the day, you have something like five or six writers on one project. You know? Once you're in the loop, it's pretty easy in a certain sense, comparatively speaking, to sort of make a great deal of money and a living doing it. Um, where I said 1.5 is somewhat easy to get. If you have an interesting story and you have sort of a, a, a name and what I did, I went to film school, UCLA film school, and I made a, a few independent films, and they got around. And so you kind of get, you know, a little name here and there. And um, once that happens, then people with money say, well, yeah, I, I, I know this person's work. And if it's 1.5 or something like that, if you can do it very cheaply, then we'll finance the film. But it's when you're trying to get the $20 million, that's when it gets hard. <laughs> but it's possible. Spike is very good about doing it. For example, a friend of mine um, has this script on, on Tar Baby. He's been trying to get it done for seven years. And he's the director on it. And the script is not very good. It's actually a, it's poorly written. But he doesn't want to change it. So he's, he's got several writers to rewrite it. But he always tells them, but I like what's in it. But just give me something, but don't change it. And so that's, that's a contradiction. It's, it's almost impossible. Well, they, they they try to, but when someone handcuffs you and they say, well, I, I want you to improve it. But in order to improve it, you have to just restructure it. You have to start from scratch and write um, almost a new screenplay. But they, they have this fixation or, or, or this obsession with it, and they don't want you to really change it. And so it becomes, you know, making minor improvements. And so that is never really done properly. So they give it to someone else to try to come with a different perspective or slant. And again, they say, well, we really like what's there. Just try to make it, you know. Um, for example, they asked me to do a film on the Panthers, you know. And they sent me the script. And um, and so I read it, and it was awful. You know, it needed everything. I mean, you just you couldn't do a, a story of the Panthers, a whole story of Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, uh, Eldridge Cleaver, all these people, in two hours, you know. But they wanted it done, so they had the whole kitchen sink in there. And there's, so there's no character development. There's there's uh, there's no interest in the story because you, there's no time to get involved with these characters. And so they gave me the script and said, it's just a little dialogue, touch up. I said, it's not a dialogue. You have to, you have to restructure the whole thing. You can't do this. And so they gave it to somebody else, you know, and said the same thing. And that person, if he, you know, if they didn't have any scruples, he just go ahead and do the best he can and try to write it. And they say, well, it's still not what we want. And so they give it to somebody else. And so it's a game in, in a certain sense. Uh, the idea is to learn how to play it, you know. But if you want to do something creative, if you really, if you consider yourself an artist and you find it very difficult, you don't want to be involved in, those, in that sort of thing. You want to make the film that you want to make, which is another problem. Yes. Yes. There's a you get a casting director, and um, what that person does, um, he or she brings in all the actors that they figure is right for the part, you know, or may not be right for the part, but just out there, you know, because you never know, you know, you may have an idea about the character, uh, a physical type, and then someone comes in to, to read that you you never thought of. And then this person really adds something to it. So you really have to be open to just everybody, you know, to come in to show you what they can do. Um, but, you know, they bring everybody through and you make this selection. You know, and um, in this particular film, um, we had to cast Danny Glover's part first uh, because 
Danny's not an old person, but we couldn't get, he, but he had to have people who were his contemporaries who were supposed to be old. And so to make that real, we had to cast him and then try to, you know, balance that age, you know, difference in real old actors and things like that. And uh, also, uh, we had the script, and it wasn't really considered anything until Danny came aboard. And when Danny was a part of it, then everyone said, oh, yeah, we can probably finance the film. And before Danny, they were, we, we got offers for less than 1.5, you know, to, to do the film. And when Danny came aboard, you know, they said, okay, well. And a lot of it has to do with uh, if, if they think that they can make their money back, you know. Uh, with the film, and this kind of film, because it's not an action-oriented film, there's not that interest to, to finance the film, because what what they want to do is is you know hit a home run and, and produce a film that's going to do very well at the box office and you know get three or four times what you made or ten times or you know or like a Jurassic Park three hundred million dollars or whatever it is, but this film will never make that and hasn't <laughs> hasn't made his money back yet. Uh, at the time, I was interested in film. It was in the 60s. It was a time when a lot of change was happening socially in, in the country. Um, the civil rights movement and things like that. And and art was used for social change. You know, everyone who was involved had something to say and, and wanted to contribute. Um, and film was very popular at the time. But at the time I was interested in film... The doors weren't open. I mean, there wasn't uh, independent films being shown. Uh, when you did films, then uh, you made it. Bec- you, you got in film because it, it's something you wanted to do. You weren't going to make a, a living behind it. Um, there was no way of di- making a film and distributing the film as such. Um, but I, I did it as a hobby. I thought, and I knew I was going to try to make films on the side while I had a, a you know nine to five. But it was something I wanted to say in film. It was a, uh, another form of expression or a medium of expression that I thought was, for me, I mean, I, I sort of had a visual sense, I thought, and uh, and I found it very attractive. But then now, now everybody wants to get into film, you know. Um, it's very possible now, too. So I just wonder if I'm well, I, I think in many ways, if you lived in L.A. during that time, most people... Um, came from the South, they sort of lived in that community. And in many ways, it, it was Southern, you know. And so you, even though, like I said, you weren't in the South, but you still had that, that experience. And I think here I wanted to sort of give you that, um, a sense of not knowing exactly, but maybe in the South, because Harry refers to going back home, and it's all sort of mixed up, and there's a bit of ambiguity because of that. I didn't want to really place it but there are references that's kind of like 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 makes you think about maybe it isn't and maybe it is and that sort of thing like that because it's all sort of interior you know it really doesn't matter as such you know it can be it can be in chicago it can be all these places where people have migrated well the opening scene was gideon's dream of being in hell is his nightmare and he wakes up and he realizes that something ominous is going to happen and it's like a foreshadowing and things are going to happen to him and he realizes that he's he's lost his Toby. A Toby is a good luck charm, and so he starts looking for that. And and then Harry shows up. Well, one of the reasons I made this story was 
to ask questions, can you really judge people? You know, because if something happens, is it a direct connection with that person or circumstantial or what? And I sort of left it to the audience to some extent to decide for that for themselves because, I mean, you, you never actually see Harry do anything. He's around when things happen. <clears throat> Excuse me. He's very, he's very honest about what he does. You know, he's, he's not very cryptic or he lies or anything. He tells you what he's what he wants, and things happen. It's a cultural thing, in in, in the sense that um, if you if you if you grew up in this sort of environment, you know, where people have these kinds of traditions, and when you're a kid, you know, when when your grandmother or parents said, "Well, this person is evil," you know, and don't let this person enter your house, you know, you wonder, well, what what did this person do, and and uh, and you're at a different state than they are, and so you know, you never really accept it, you know, uh, these old customs and ways, you know. So it's always, at that time, problematic. And so uh, then, but later on, when you get older, you, you sort of reflect on that, and then you wonder: is is there some sort of validity to those suspicions and things like that? Because you you start experiencing the world, and then you find there are people who have. You know, evil intentions or an agenda that you know you you, you sort of wonder about. You know, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that the the Harry is uh, an evil person in a sense. Uh, the character is based on a folklore character called Harry Man, and <clears throat> that character is a trickster, and he actually st- well, he's he's supposed to steal your soul, and in order to get your soul back, you have to outwit the trickster. And that's the whole premise of the story, basically. And I wanted to bring up these issues, like I said, uh, about this you know, culture that's sort of like disappearing in folk ways and folklore. But it doesn't exist as, as much now as it did then. Because yeah. a lot of this stuff, I guess, for young people is either new or they hear about it indirectly. Because, yeah. for example, like I don't know if you know anything about like the purpose of the broom. Some and kids still are sort of mystified by it. What does it mean and things like that? And I noticed today that I, when 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 I asked, uh, or, or young kids would ask me, young people ask, well, what does the symbolism of the film mean, particularly the broom and things like that? And when when I was a kid, you couldn't sweep around adults with a broom because if you hit their foot with a broom, it means they're going to go to jail. It was bad luck and things like that. You know, whether that was true or not uh, remains to be seen, but a lot of people really believed in that, you know. And today... You don't find things like that as off, you know, in in one's family situation, um, unless you're from the south, and and it's in some parts of it they still exist. But a lot of the stuff is very is is somewhat new still, and the whole idea was to get back to that, to those folk ways, and to sort of um, see how valuable they are today. And uh, because, you know, you. you you know, when you're in stress and things like that, you, you fall back on certain things, you know, principles and ideas and spiritual things. And um, these things were very important to me. You know, you can, look, you can look at them. I mean, you can look back on them, and they do explain somewhat the world in a certain certain extent. It's like sayings and things. There's some truth in them. And uh, I guess that's why they came about, you know, because they do reflect some part of r- reality. You know, you find that today there's a vacuum of that. It's sort of vacuous. Yes. Why did you choose to end the film the way you did? Why did I choose to end the film the way I did? It's kind of a false ending in a sense. One assumes that Harry had reached the climax, the crisis is over and so forth. In reality, it isn't in a sense because Harry is still there and his presence is still felt. They had to leave the house, you know. So again, there's this sort of ambiguity at the end. Um, 
I mean, you can look at it and study it and say, well, is Harry really dead? You know, his presence is still felt. They still had to get out of the house and so forth. So that's the reason why the ending is like it is. You know, I didn't want it to be like clear, even though in one way he's dead and in another way he isn't dead. Again, you know, his character is based on this folkloric character. I mean, I didn't want to say directly. I mean, I didn't want to say, well, look, this is an evil person. Um, I think it depends on the circumstance. I think uh, some people look at the movie and say that, 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 that Harry, in a sense, is more of an angel than a, um, an evil spirit because of the fact that he brings about this crisis in the family that ultimately resolves itself. You get a sense that they're a lot better off in a, in a certain sense. He brought the family together. So... People look at that as a positive sort of figure in a way. And also in terms of African culture and, and images and things like that, you have this duality, this sort of dualism where a figure or a symbol can represent more than just one idea. You know, good and evil coexist. And so that's a part of it as well. Um, that's a good question. I think you don't necessarily have to go to a university to, to get into this business. You can can see a film company that's, you know, working and doing a film in a neighborhood or something like that and, and try to get attached to it in, in a way. A lot of things you have to do for free. Uh, I know in the trades, they sort of list the films that are going on and you can go and say, look, I want to try it as a PA, a production assistant and uh, or runner or whatever it is, you know, and just to get in. And then you can sort of work your way up to different things. The thing you want to do is once you get in, is to impress somebody, you know, because that's what really counts. It's like, well, this person's a really good worker. They may not pay you this time, but the next time you come out, they will make sure that this person works because that's one thing they really want in this business. They want people that they can depend on. And that's what it's... Because, it, you know, for example, like 15 minutes can be thousands of dollars wasted. If you screw up, you know, like you, if you're working in costuming or something like that, and you, and you forget the scarf, you know, it's not there on, on, for that particular scene, that um, they may have to shoot around it or... or postpone that shot or whatever it is, that can cost thousands of dollars. If the actor is only there for that day, they have to go and shoot it, and it may not be able to cut because that the person one scene is wearing a scarf and, he's, and he turns around, the scarf isn't there, and that sort of thing. It's continuity problems. Uh, so they want people who are going to be doing their job you know, and, and do it well. And so it's, it's basically getting to know someone or getting in and, and making a nuisance of yourself until you get in. Um, that's one way of going to film school. Um, it's, it's, it's a lot easier to get into the business now that, than it used to be. Well, thank you for thank you. listening. Sorry that it was Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.